Uh, my name is Brian, one of the pastors here at the summit. Um, I, I was thinking about this this past week. Um, I guess it's like with becoming a dad. I, I was I was like interacting with my daughter, and I was kind of like wondering in the back of my mind, like I wonder if this is one of like the ten minutes from the first ten years of her life that she'll remember or not. Do you ever? I don't know if you ever interact with kids, and you're like, I wonder if they'll remember this or not, or you even think about this in your own life. In the first ten years of your life, you live five million two hundred fifty-six thousand minutes. I think that's right. That's right. Five million two hundred fifty-six thousand minutes, and yet, like when you're in your twenties, thirties, forties, beyond, like how many of those do you actually remember? Like ten of them, fifteen of them. And then it's also weird, like, the minutes you do remember as opposed to what you don't remember. So I was thinking about this in my own life where, like, when I was six or seven, like, we went to Disney World. I know that conceptually, but I can remember basically nothing from that experience. But I can remember when I was in kindergarten and I got yelled at by my gym teacher, Mr. Chambers, for not knowing how to tie my shoes because I was a a bit of a late bloomer in that uh, respect. (laughs) And uh, uh, my parents got me these things called bow biters. This is how much I remember them. Did anybody have bow biters or is that like, okay. So bow biters, uh, you would have Batman on them uh, or your respective superhero. And uh, they would chomp down on your bow of uh, of your knot and uh, they wouldn't come untied, but we were playing dodgeball, and they came off, and then my shoes came untied, and then I got yelled at. I can remember that like it was yesterday. It's so weird. Right? Like, why do I remember that as opposed to going to Disney World? Or something about another memory that I remembered really distinctly. Um, when I was six, seven, eight, somewhere in there, uh, my dad uh, decided to start playing in a, a rec soccer league uh, in our city. And um, basically, the reason he, we were talking about this yesterday because they're in town, and uh, the reason he decided to do it was because he was coaching me playing soccer. I was kind of one of the kids that was starting to play soccer in America, and uh, he was coaching, but he had never played, and so he kind of wanted not just kind of to watch videos about people playing soccer. He wanted to actually have that experience for himself. And, and I was trying to think about, like, why do I remember uh, still going to the field, and wh- why is that kind of some of the 15 minutes that I remember from the first 10 years or so uh, of my life? And I think, I think it's for two reasons. Um, the first was, it, it was a pretty uh, hilarious uh, thing to witness, where my dad, who's always been very athletic, uh, was trying to play soccer for the first time in his life. If you've ever played soccer, it's not just kicking the ball back and forth. It's probably, I think, the most technical uh, sport to play that's out there. And just sort of the juxtaposition between my dad trying to string together like three competent dribbles versus like uh, 14 other men, all of them born in South or Central America, came out of the womb <laughs> playing soccer, right? They've, like, they've been playing soccer their entire lives. And even as a kid, I was like, that doesn't look very fun, Dad. But, you know, more power to you that you're, you're trying to do this. So I can remember that. The, the, the second reason I think it's so memorable is because I think there's something uh, just intrinsically powerful about the concept of identification. Uh, I think there's something uh, profoundly impactful about somebody, even though they don't have to, uh, stretching themselves, maybe even in some degree being willing to humiliate themselves for the sake of not just sort of conceptually understanding what it is you're going through, but actually being there, actually experiencing it, actually going through what it is that you're going through. And I think that's probably the driving reason why I still remember uh, that memory, uh, even more than Disney World, believe it or not, (laughs) uh, well into my 30s. And um, that's really the concept I want to talk to you about this morning. Last week, we talked about the resurrection of Jesus. We've been walking through, we'll do this for three weeks, the, the story of Jesus engaging the death of this man, Lazarus, and his family. And last week, we, we saw kind of the good news of resurrection. But this week, don't miss this. This is very, very important. Is the resurrection is not good news if Jesus doesn't first perfectly fully identify with us. Do you understand that? Like, it's not good news that Jesus resurrected from the grave if he doesn't first take upon himself 
all of the bad things, all of the hard things to perfectly identify with the fullness of the human experience. And what we're going to see this week is why this theme of identification is so powerful. It ultimately points to the identification of Jesus towards us. Um, let, me, let me just say this. I, I, I feel like um, you know when I watch people teach through John 11, the majority of the time uh, people kind of skip this part. Or they just quickly, oh yeah, yeah, Jesus wept, and then they move on. And some of you were kind of like, man, what is going on here? You know, it just seems almost like Mary starts crying, and then like there's a group of friends there that are like, if you start crying, then we're going to start crying. And they start crying. And then Jesus is like, if all you guys start crying, then I'm going to start crying. And then they're all just crying. And then it just ends, and you're like, what do we do with this? Well, I, I think this really is uh, one of the most profound, uh, uh, impactful, practically applicable uh, uh, stories of the Bible if you've gone through any sort of suffering, if you're trying to help anybody through any sort of suffering as well. And so looking forward to walking through this with you. Uh, and that's why we're going to do it. We'll, we'll spend the rest of our time answering two questions. What happens? Why does it matter? What happens? Why does it matter? That's a good maybe posture to take anytime you read the Bible. So what happens? Uh, I love this scene because I think, we, you know, we believe uh, that every single story in the Bible happened to real people in real history. There's some that are kind of difficult to like believe they happened as much in real history, not because they didn't, but it's just how did that exactly go down? This is not a difficult story to wrap your mind around. This is a very easy story to see like, oh yeah, that would happen to anybody. And we're going to walk through it now in order. Okay. So the first kind of scene in this is we'll call it uh, previously in our story. So previously with Je- Jesus and Lazarus, or last time with Jesus and Lazarus. Uh, La- Lazarus, yes. All right. Basically what happened is Jesus is traveling with his disciples and Jesus gets word uh, that one of his good friends, Lazarus, is about to die. Lazarus is in a community called Bethany, two miles outside of Jerusalem. His two sisters, Mary and Martha, send to Jesus and say, hey, if you don't get here, our brother's going to die. Lazarus is going to die. They send to Jesus. Jesus doesn't make it to Bethany in time. And uh, Lazarus dies. Now Jesus still gets to Bethany and when he gets there you've got these two sisters, Mary and Martha, uh, who respond to Jesus in a real diversity of ways. It's very interesting because uh, for any of you who have siblings you probably know what this is like where even though you maybe share a biology with your sibling, um, you're very different personality wise where like one of you is extroverted and the other is introverted. One of you is good with money, the other of you is terrible with money. One of you is like good with people and uh, the other of you is like socially dysfunctional and can't hold a conversation. It's probably the other sibling, right? Not you, uh, the other one. But um, um, you know, like that's the dynamic that's going on with Mary and Martha here. You've got Martha who catches word that Jesus is uh, making his way into town and she is kind of the good extroverted people pleasing person that she is. It's like, I'm going to meet him on the outskirts. I won't even wait for him to like get all the way here. And you got Mary who's just like, I don't want to freaking talk to anybody, Jesus included. Uh, and that's what you see if you look at verse 20. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. So you see the striking contrast between even even the way these two sisters are grieving the loss of their uh, brother. This leads us then to Mary actually encountering Jesus. We haven't uh, seen uh, her interact with Jesus yet. So look at verse 28. We'll look at the first part of this passage. When she had said this, now the she there is Martha. The said this is the confession that Martha made at the end of last week. So basically Martha tells Jesus, Jesus, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Jesus tells Martha, your brother is going to rise from the grave. He's going to be victorious over death. I am the resurrection. I alone am the one in whom uh, this victory is found. Do you believe this, Martha? Martha says, yes, I do believe this. You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. You are coming into the world. You are the resurrection, the life, the hope. And uh, it's like after she said this, 
Look at this. She went and called her sister Mary, uh, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Uh, you kind of see the true extroverted nature of Martha here in this scene, where it's like on one hand on the surface, and, and I think very authentically, is having this uh, very profound spiritual encounter with Jesus. And yet you can see like her people-pleasing tendencies like beneath the surface, where it's like in the back of her mind, she's like, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And like beneath the surface, she's like, where is Mary? Like, I can't believe Mary isn't here for this. I can't believe she's so rude. I can't believe that jerk is like behind closed doors, scrolling through her phone instead of being here, having a conversation with Jesus. Where is she? And that's why, like, immediately after this confession, Martha is just like, it says what? She immediately went to Mary and said to her in private, Jesus is looking for you. And it's almost like Mary's like, oh, oh, okay, yeah, I probably should be there. Okay, I'll put down my phone. I'll go. I'll have a conversation if I have to. Uh, That leads us then to uh, verse 30. Now, Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. Uh, The reason for this is because Jesus uh, didn't want to make a spectacle of the pain of this family. He's very gracious, right? Sometimes religious leaders try to kind of draw as much attention to themselves to kind of say, look at how good I am. Look at what it is I'm doing. Jesus very counterculturally met these women at the fringe knowing that they didn't want to make a spectacle of them, wanted to treat them in a very gentle, kind manner. Because, you know, in your own life, if you've walked through tragedy, if you've walked through something hard, you'd much rather have a very intimate conversation like behind closed doors as opposed to in the middle of a bar or a coffee shop. Jesus knows this. He's trying not to make a spectacle of these women. And particularly, I think, respecting Mary as well as somebody who is uh, particularly introverted. And, uh, but look at this little detail. I love this little detail in verse 31. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. So you have Mary, this very private person, this very kind of uh, like composed person, uh, you know, going to have this conversation with Jesus, a very difficult conversation with Jesus, and then you got her friends or the people that are there, like, where are you going? Can we come? Can we help? Can we follow you? And it's just like, oh, okay, sure, come on, let's go. Verse 32, now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been there, my brother would not have died. Now this is where, okay, real people, real history, Try to take a step back, picture this in your mind, where you've got Mary, um, this introverted, private, kind of uh, composed person, right? She's walking to meet Jesus on the outskirts of her community. Uh, I think one of the things that characterizes introverts, if you're introverted, I'm, I'm pretty introverted, is um, you tend to have like, before you have a real conversation, about 10 internal conversations before you have that conversation, is anybody introverted here or am I alone in this? Okay. You know, you're like, you have these, like, you're like, okay, before you actually talk to that person, you've sort of processed, this is the way I'm going to talk through this. And uh, I mean, this is just a guess on my end, but it just seems like it doesn't go the way that Mary wanted it to go, right? Like she gets there in this sort of private, composed, behind closed doors person, sees Jesus, starts crying, falls down at his feet, and just says to him, if you had been here, I wouldn't be going through this right now. Which even the confession itself is a, an astoundingly applicable confession because if you've ever been in a place of tragedy, if you've been in a place of suffering or hardship, you know, instinctually one of the things you think, if you have any sort of like belief in God whatsoever, is like, God, where are you? And if you're really good and if you're really all-powerful, why am I going through this? That's the complaint that Martha brought to Jesus last week, that's the complaint that Mary is bringing to Jesus this week. 
Um, and even I just hope to some degree, if you've ever wrestled to that with that at all, I think a lot of times we feel immediate a ton of shame, like I shouldn't feel that or think that whatsoever. And actually right here on the very pages of scripture are two women who are actually bringing this challenge to Jesus. And he's not like, boom, incinerated, I'm done with you, how dare you question me? But instead he very graciously long suffers alongside them so that they might come to a place of redemption on the other side. Now how does he do this? Look at Jesus' response here. We'll call this the, uh, the anger of Jesus. Look at verse 33. When Jesus saw Mary weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Now, it's interesting. Uh, the New Testament was originally written in Greek, and sometimes it's difficult. If any of you are bilingual, you know it's difficult to kind of capture the fullness of language from one to the other sometimes. This is one of those times where that's the case, where this is in no way a bad translation at all. It's just hard to capture the fullness. There's a diversity of the ways this is translated, particularly when you look at when it says, um, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. There's a component of, and any of you, again, who have suffered in any degree, there, there's an element of deep sadness that you feel, but there's a great troubleness or even like anger. And actually, a number of translations actually use that word anger to describe what it is that Jesus is feeling here in this moment. I'll just give you a couple examples. Uh, here's one. When Jesus saw her crying and the Jews who had come with her crying, he was angry in his spirit and deeply moved. Uh, here's another. When Jesus saw her sobbing and the Jews with her sobbing, a deep anger welled up within him. Now, the question, of course, is like, why is Jesus angry? <laughs> like, why is Jesus upset? Why is he feeling so outraged. In the text, we don't have to hypothesize or guess, the text actually tells us it's twofold. Again, in verse 33, when Jesus saw Mary weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping. Now let's take this in reverse order. Why is Jesus upset or angry at the Jews who came with her also weeping? Well, our our best guess is because you have these people who are demonstrating this great show of emotion uh, without any sort of degree of understanding what's happening. And probably, when we kind of understand this from a historical perspective, they probably have almost no relational um, like uh, history with Mary and her family. Uh, actually, in the first century, mourning was taken so seriously that there were professional mourners. That was a career path. Um, so if you're still trying to figure out what to do with your life, there you go. That's, a, that's an option for you. And um, it was kind of this weird, dysfunctional, emotional paparazzi who were kind of witnessing the tragedy of people without really knowing these people and also financially benefiting off of that. And so we kind of feel this anger too at times where um, you know somebody famous dies and it trends on Twitter and then you look at responses of people that act like that musician or that actor died and it like forever is the end to their life. And it's like, I don't know. I mean, sometimes it's legitimate. Sometimes you knew that person. Sometimes you love their music. But sometimes it's like, I think you're just trying to like draw a ton of attention to the fact that somebody died. You know, it's like, I don't know, like George Harrison from the Beatles dies and people are like, this is the end of life itself. And it's like, you were just tweeting last week that the Beatles were too mainstream for you. Like, don't, don't try to kind of like play both ways in terms of like taking advantage of this. Um, you know, and, and so you've got Jesus looking at these people And again, the other thing this family doesn't need is just in the height of kind of their tragedy, a bunch of people being like, we're so sorry, we're so sorry, we're so sorry. Will that be cash, credit? Will you be able to write a check? How exactly can you pay us for our mourning alongside us? So Jesus is angry towards the manipulation and the exploitation of a family's tragedy, and uh, rightfully so. It also says that Jesus is angry when he sees Mary weeping. Now, 
You could be like, okay, well, he's angry because she shouldn't be sad, but he very immediately weeps alongside her, so that's not what it is. Why is Jesus weep, or why is Jesus angry seeing Mary weeping? And really, the best reason that he would be angry in this moment is because Jesus is coming face to face with one of his greatest opponents, that is death itself. It's kind of like Jesus and death are in the octagon together, and really, if you know the rest of the story of John, things are about to get ramped up, and they are going to do battle with one another. It's just important to understand this. I think um, sometimes what's presented in our culture is that death is no big deal. Um, or, because even from a Christian perspective, because Jesus defeats death, you shouldn't take it that seriously whatsoever. That's not the way Jesus handled it. It's really astounding here, particularly even in this scene, that he's like about to fix this entire problem in like seven minutes, and he still is angry and weeps when he comes face to face with death and its consequences on his people. Now, this is striking juxtaposition. I was thinking about this. Uh, so, um, this is going to be maybe the most offensive thing I've said uh, in our church's seven-ish years of history. Um, so I found out like six months ago that my wife hadn't seen any of the Star Wars films. Um, that's not the offensive thing, as offensive as it might be, right? And we're working to remedy it. There's eight Star Wars films. We got six of the eight done, and uh, we should have this fixed very, very quickly. Um, but last week, we were watching uh, episode three, so the third of the prequels, and uh, Yoda is having this conversation with Anakin about the concept of death, and uh, Yoda says, says this, Death is a natural part of life. Rejoice for those around you who transform into the force. Mourn them do not, miss them do not. Attachment leads to jealousy. Now, here is the most offensive thing that I've ever said. Yoda is wrong here, okay? This Hollywoodization of Eastern spirituality that is pretty prevalent in the Star Wars story, um, where death is no big deal. Don't be that attached. Don't mourn. It's like that's not the way that Jesus is responding to death in this particular scene. Do you see that? He comes face to face with death, and he's not like, Mary, stop crying. You guys, stop crying. This isn't a big deal. He's not even like, She's a, he's in a better place. Why are you so sad? But instead, he is angry because he is looking at this death, this disease called death, which is one of the most obvious universal byproducts of sin that is rejecting ourselves, rejecting and disconnecting ourselves from the giver and sustainer of life itself. The natural consequence of disconnecting ourselves from the giver and sustainer of life itself is what? Death. He's looking at the consequence of sinfulness and disconnection from the God of life, and he is angry. He is facing an opponent. He is ready to take this thing down. Is everybody okay after I said that about Yoda? Okay. Um, <laughs> yeah, give me a minute. <laughs> yeah. um, this leads us then to the identification of Jesus. Look at what happens next. Verse 34, and Jesus said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. Now this is where, okay, we're seeing kind of the... Um, the tangibility of the identification of Jesus here in this scene. It's like, here's Mary weeping. What do most of us do when we see somebody cry? Or if you've cried, like in almost any environment, we're either told to suck it up, if somebody knows us real well, uh, or <laughs> people try to awkwardly get away from that conversation as quickly as possible, right? It's like there's something uneasiness about, especially this, like, 
here you have Mary in the pit. You have Mary in the pit of the valley of the shadow of death. And it's astounding to me because even Jesus is about to fix this problem again in like seven or eight minutes. And he's not like, would you stop crying? It's going to be okay. He's not like, you know what? You think this death is bad? I'm about to get killed on a cross. Are you kidding me? There's no contest. I'm the one who should be crying, not you. Jesus walks through the valley of the shadow of death with Mary. He gets in the pit with Mary. He weeps with Mary. And it's such a powerful moment where even kind of these confused Jewish mourners even are like, wow. I mean, look at what they say. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. Isn't that powerful? That like even the people who didn't believe were witnessing this and being like, he loved him so much. But then you can see they're still trying to wrap their mind around what's going on here in verse 37. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Which is in some ways a reflection and an echo uh, of uh, the petition that both Martha and Mary are bringing as well. And this portion of the scene draws to a close. Now, how does a bunch of people crying change our lives? I think there's a really good reason it changes our lives. And I want to capture it in a single sentence, and then we'll spend the rest of our time unpacking the sentence in order. So what I think you're seeing, why does this matter, is this. Is Jesus fully identifies with us so that he might fully heal us so that he might send us out to do the same for others. Okay? Jesus fully identifies with us so that he might fully heal us so that he might send us out to do the same for others. So let's begin with um, Jesus fully identifies with us. Um... Sorry, I'm trying to think about, do I want to do this the same way I did it at the nine or not? We'll, we'll find it as we go, okay? Um, Jesus fully identifies with us. So um, let's start with a theological statement. We'll unpack it from there. We believe that God is uh, fully God. Is that radical enough for you? So Jesus is fully God, and yet what happened historically is that he stepped out of heaven into history. He added humanity to his divinity. So when we see Jesus operating, we see the reflection of something we theologically call the hypostatic union. That is that in the person of Jesus Christ dwells full humanity, 100% humanity, as well as 100% divinity as well. It's not 50-50. It's not some sort of weird conglomeration of both. It is 100% man, 100% God as well. And I think that when we understand that theological statement, the natural implication of it should be then in these moments, like when we see Jesus weeping alongside Mary, there's this astounding degree of um, awe, of wonder, of worship that should overflow from our hearts, minds, souls to be like, man, isn't it amazing the most powerful being in the universe would treat from the grand scheme of things an insignificant marginalized woman to this degree? Isn't it crazy? I mean, think about the way for any of us, if we have power, if we have prestige, if we have influence, it, it's, it's bizarre, it's countercultural for us to handle that in any other way other than like, man, like have as much stuff as you want, leverage it for as much happiness as you want, live in the safest place with the best schools where there's no problems, and you can essentially create this little kingdom of heaven on earth, and you look at the people who don't have that stuff, and it's like, not my problem, right? Like that's the way most people find it. It's like, not my ethnicity's problem. 
Not my socioeconomic classes problem. Not my, it's not my problem, so I don't have to deal with it whatsoever. And here's this striking juxtaposition, this turning upside down of the way that Jesus treats us and the way that nobody else treats us, where Jesus, the most powerful entity, the most powerful being in the entirety of the universe, is laying down the entirety of that for the sake of fully identifying with Mary and a byproduct as a reflection of the fact that he fully identifies with us, even and especially in the hardest stuff. It's like this should like really, I was thinking about this because we taught through uh, Mark, the, the gospel of Mark for two years. And you know what like hit me for the very first time, even though we taught through that book for two years, is like there's a lot of Jesus like eating with people. He shares a lot of meals with people. And for the first time this week, like Jesus being willing to eat with people, like move me to like worship. Um, and, and I was thinking about this. I was like, what would it be like to be hungry because you're fully man? And yet be the same God of Genesis 1 who can speak and there's like mountains. And yet have to wait like two hours for a meal. Can you imagine what that would be like to be like hungry? And if you had the power to like speak and create anything out of nothing and be like, yeah, dinner's going to be like two to three more hours and you're just there like waiting. It's like, I would leverage that power like crazy. If I'm the same God of Genesis 1 who speaks and there's light, who speaks and there's oceans, who speaks and there's sun, moon, stars, who speaks and there are mountains, I would speak and I'd be like, boom, prime rib, boom, cherry cobbler, boom, twice baked potatoes. I'd be like, nom, 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 nom. Do you guys want some? No? Okay, well, you're not God, so you know, wait two hours. Sorry. You guys are jerks anyways. You, you know, I, this is what I deserve. But it's like, oh, like the embrace of full humanity that even he alongside broken finite people would wait two years for, two, two hours for a meal. Isn't that nuts? And it's just like the same way here where it's like Jesus could stand very far off. Do you understand like death is not his problem. He makes it his problem, but he's God. So like the whole like end of life thing, I mean, he's an infinite being who has always been and always will be. So like he could have easily from a distance been like, not my problem. And yet he draws near. He doesn't draw us all near. He doesn't step out of heaven into history, but he actually walks through the valley of the shadow of death with Mary. And, and it's amazingly good news. It's what contrasts the Christian worldview, basically from every, every other religious system, where you know, there's other religions, and on the surface they seem a lot like Christianity, but underneath all of them, they have this kind of driving way of understanding God, where God is sort of going to fix us from a distance. Right? Like, here, do these three things, do these five things, do these 12 things. Here's sort of this ladder of salvation that through your obedience, you can climb up. And if your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds, then somehow you can be good enough for God. What you're seeing in this scene is a reflection of the fundamental problem of humanity. We're not just bad, we're dead. And dead people can't climb up a ladder of salvation. Dead people can't do anything substantive other than lay there, right? It's like we got to have somebody come down to us. And that's exactly what God is doing through the person and the work of Jesus Christ, where Jesus is offering more than just like, hey, do these three things and then you'll be good. No, the declaration of the gospel is you could never do those three things. You are broken. You've disconnected yourself from God. You are dead. But I will even take death upon myself so that I may be victorious over it when I raise from the grave three days later. And so Jesus draws near to fully identify with us. Now, why? Why would Jesus fully identify with us? Well, Jesus fully identified with us so that he might 
fully heal us. Now we're starting to kind of get into this to some degree, but without full identification, there is not full healing. As we said, even the resurrection is not good news. If at first, Jesus has not first taken upon himself the entirety of the brokenness of the human experience. Okay? Like if he hasn't taken upon himself a ton of our baggage, when he raises victorious three days later, there's nothing for him to be victorious over. And so that's the reason why we're seeing, even leading up to the cross, not just that Jesus suffers, but the astounding degree of diversity of ways in which Jesus suffers as well. And I would encourage you, like even, I know we're going to be back in Exodus in a couple of weeks, but maybe even just this week, read the remainder of John. It's only 10 more chapters. Read the remainder of John and see not only the degree to which Jesus suffers, but the degree to which Jesus suffers in almost any conceivable way. He's abandoned, he's beaten, he's abused, he's shamed, he experiences systemic injustice, he experiences judicial injustice, he experiences death, that's a bad one. Why? Why all those ways? Because he is taking upon the entirety of the brokenness of the human experience so that when he resurrects three days later, what he has absorbed upon himself, he has conquered over it all. And it's like really good news because I think one of the things we can instinctually understand is that like healing doesn't really happen at a distance. Anytime I have a conversation with anybody who's overcome anything hard whatsoever, you know what they don't say? They don't say like, I don't know, this person tweeted about my problem and then it got better, right? And it's just funny, like, we, we almost function this way a lot of times in culture. We take these huge, complex, uh, systemic issues, and then it's almost like to alleviate our guilty conscience, it's like, hashtag whatever it is. I don't want to name it because then somebody's going to get upset. So hashtag whatever it is. And uh, it's like, well, my work here is done. And, uh, you know, I think we're making the world a better place here. And it's like, what? Like, is that, like... Nobody was like, yeah, systemic injustice was fixed because thank you that you finally tweeted about this. I'm not saying it's bad to raise awareness, but I'm saying if you think that's the extent of like to which transformation happens in both cultural and personal lives, it's like you're going to keep on waiting for things to get better, okay? What does it require for us to be changed? Identification, incarnation, a full entering into our experience. Anytime I talk to anybody who has come out of something really, really difficult, they're not like, you know what? That person on Facebook said, you know, I'm so, uh, uh, I'm praying for Brian's anger problem, hashtag pray for Brian, and then I woke up and I wasn't angry anymore. It's like, this person was a friend to me and they long suffered alongside me and they were patient with me and they forgave me and they listened to me, and they took my baggage on themselves, and they really worked to bring healing in my life. So I, I just don't know how transformation comes without any element of identification first. And the reason that Jesus is fully identifying with us is so that he can be victorious over anything that the world throws at us. That's why. That's why. So Jesus, he fully identifies with us so that he might uh, fully heal us so that, don't miss this, so that he might send us out to do the same for others. So he might send us out to do the same for others. So what we believe 
is that kind of like a mirror reflects what's around it. The way that God's treated you should be reflected through the way you treat other people as well. And consequently, what this means then is through the way that God has treated you in the gospel, it transforms you and empowers you to be the type of person who treats other people in the way that God has treated you so that you might be an agent of healing in the sphere of influence that you have been uh, uh, entrusted with. And I, I just think, like, this is so necessary. I, I think about it from a, a societal level. I think of it from a personal level. You know, societally, um, you know, I have this really crazy belief that the Christian worldview is exclusively where there's hope for the world. And I think this is one of the places where it's so tangibly seen, where you see the things that ail us societally, and you see how, even in the midst of tragedy, um, like, it's almost like people do not have the capacity or the ability or even the desire to demonstrate any sort of empathy towards one another. So, right, so there's a tragedy, and rather than that tragedy even bringing us together more as shared image bearers of the divine, instead it divides us because we politicize that tragedy, we minimize that tragedy, we kind of talk about why that tragedy isn't that big of a deal, we bring up another tragedy, it's like, you think that tragedy's bad, let me tell you about this tragedy and why you shouldn't even be sad about this tragedy. And can you believe that we're more fractured after that as opposed to more unified? You know, I think, let me just give a real practical example. It's like, you know, we as a church are trying to be uh, increasingly intelligent, increasingly proactive to be a people of racial reconciliation, which I think is one of the major issues in our culture right now, and one of the major places where the gospel is needed to bring healing, where people are trying to figure out why isn't what we're doing bringing healing. And it grieves me, um, you go on social media, which again, I know is like probably the, the toxic of most toxic environments, but still, I think it's a reflection of the way people act when nobody's looking. Um, you're kind of getting an actual glimpse into the human heart and not the way people kind of like pretend in front of other people. And it grieves me that like, okay, an African-American male dies and the majority response, particularly from the majority culture, is not like, boy, that grieves me that we just experienced the loss of human life. Boy, that grieves me that there's now one less dad, um, one less husband, one less son, one less image bearer of the divine. Boy, do I lament and share with you in that. But instead, like, what is the immediate response typically? It's like, well, what was his criminal record? Should I be sad about this or should I not be sad about this? Did he deserve it or did he not deserve it? It's a politicalization of the loss of a life for the sake of the advancement of an agenda. And we actually have this really crazy belief in the gospel that people take priority over politics. Isn't that nuts? Isn't that nuts? We actually have a worldview that sustains that. And it's like, what if, like, I understand things are politically complex. I'm not trying to downplay that to any degree, but what if we as a people led with lament and grief and empathy in the way that Jesus does here in this particular scene in the midst of tragedy, no matter what that expression of tragedy is? Do you think like, some sort of unity could happen in the response to the brokenness of the world? Do you think we could be a pilot plant, a glimpse into the goodness of what life looks like when Jesus Christ is Lord? Do you think we could be a people of transformation in a culture that needs it so desperately? I think so. Maybe you're thinking about it. Um, but I think so. Or I think about this from an individual level. You know, I think about... Um, I don't know, I think it at a couple levels individually. I think one, there's just astounding hope here. I think sometimes what happens um, is if you've been through really difficult things, one of the things that immediately follows up you believing really, di- or you experiencing really difficult things is like 
I need to find somebody who's been through exactly what I've been through so that I can get healing, right? And what happens a lot of times is not so much that you like, sometimes you're fortunate to maybe find a support group, like you had cancer, you find other people who had cancer. That's a good thing. It's helpful to have somebody who knows exactly what it is you're going through. But a lot of times what I observe is that people so sort of privatize whatever their own expression of suffering is, they get led to this belief of nobody can relate to what I'm going through and I'm all alone. And that's a really dark place to be. Uh, there's not a lot of hope, there's not a lot of direction, and there's no community, and things don't get better, they actually get worse, and probably a lot of you could tell stories about this. Uh, it overwhelms me a lot of times, too, as a pastor, because I feel like I'm in the business of trying to help people a lot of times, and uh, I know that um, it's helpful when I can sit down across from somebody and say, oh yeah, I've been through the exact same thing, here's kind of what it was like, here's what I went through. But um, there's a lot of expressions of brokenness that I haven't gone through. And I think the beautiful byproduct of this particular scene is that the hope for change in your life, if you've gone through something really hard, or the hope for being an agent of change for people's like in the sphere of influence you've been entrusted with, is not so much that like you, like this perfect blind date, find the unicorn of a person who doesn't actually exist, who can perfectly, absolutely identify with everything you've gone through and you have to find that and I have to be that. If that doesn't align, then you're just sort of jacked up and hopeless for the rest of your life. But instead, my job is to point you to the person in the work of Jesus Christ who exclusively and alone has, out of grace, identified with the fullness of the brokenness of the human experience. Your hope, if you are suffering, is not finding another person who's gone through exactly what you've gone through. Although it's helpful to find that to some degree, but that is not ultimately where hope rests. Hope rests in the person and the work of Christ because he's more than a savior. He is also a perfect identifier and he knows what it's like to suffer to such a degree that even you get to the point where you ask the question, God, have you abandoned me? That's the question he's asking on the cross as he's being crucified. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Why have you forsaken me? And yet he emerges on the other side of even asking that question, I believe who you say you are and I will walk in obedience. And he is victorious even over that element of darkness of the human experience as well. And what it means then is that if you are suffering and going through really hard things, hope is available even in this room. If you want to be an agent of change, you don't have to have a PhD in counseling to be used. We all have access to the person and the work of Jesus Christ and we can be collectively used to help and transform and heal one another, not as we save one another, but we point one another to the Savior who can actually help. And it's like you can be used to such a degree. I forgot about this in the first service. That's why I like doing this three times. So you get like the director's cut version of this. Um, I can't believe I forgot this. So somebody remember who's in the nine and then tell them this, but... You know what like the, maybe the most um, impactful part of this whole scene is? is? Is what happens actually at the very beginning of this. We read over it, but um, at the beginning of uh, John 11, John tells us about who this Mary is. So if you, I think we have this on the screen, um, but you can, you can look in your Bible too. Look at John 11 verse 2. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. Now, why is that a huge deal? 
Well, because what's going to happen in John 12 is a very famous scene where uh, Mary knows that Jesus is about to start on the very intentional downward path to his death on a cross, and she walks in and she weeps over him and she pours perfume on him and she cleans his feet with her hair, uh, which was a very empathetic thing to do, but also not very hygienic or normal in those days, okay? You're like, did everybody do that? No, that's the point. Like this astounding display of empathy from Mary towards Jesus as Jesus takes his journey towards death. Why? Because Mary's like, I got your back. You have my back, I got your back. No, it's more than that. It's... Mary's encounter with Jesus transformed her into this type of woman who treats other people in the way that Jesus had treated her. That's what's happening. It's like, boom, immediately, John 11, Jesus treats Mary in this way. John 12, Mary's treating other people this way. What? That's the power of the gospel, an encounter with the God who identifies, empowers you to be a person of identification. And the world needs you to be this type of person. Your spouse needs you to be this type of person. Your friends need you to be this type of person. Strangers need you to be this type of person. You know what the world doesn't need? The world doesn't need another person who downplays another person's suffering. The world doesn't need another person who trivializes another person's suffering. The world doesn't need another person who awkwardly steps away from another person's suffering. The world doesn't need another person who makes a sarcastic comment or a joke to alleviate the tension as somebody is crying. The world doesn't need somebody to say, oh, you think that's bad? Let me tell you the story about when I suffered. And uh, you know, then you will see how you shouldn't be so sad about what you're going through whatsoever. The world needs identifiers. And identifiers come through the perfect identifier in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And when you realize he's treated you this way, he empowers you to treat those around you this way as well, and healing is the byproduct. Alright. Let's pray. Let's ask God that he would do that by the power of his spirit. And uh, let's respond. God, we thank you so much for who it is that you are and what it is that you've done, and um, we thank you for a scene like this one. Uh, Strikingly countercultural, strikingly applicable. I pray by the power of your spirit you would help us receive this truth for our lives. We would know that you've treated us in this way. Uh, I really do. Like, I pray right now for those who are suffering and going through tragedy and hardship and they feel like they're all alone. They would understand that you're very near and they're not alone. Do not let them believe that lie that Satan loves the habit people believe where they're totally isolated, nobody cares, they're abandoned. They're not. You've identified with them. And God, I pray that you would understand that you've not simply identified, but you have resurrected as well. Consequently, you are victorious over the worst things that the world has to throw at us. And so as a consequence, God, I pray that we would respond now rightly uh, as a reflection of what you've done for us. We ask all these things in your name. Amen.